Letter thirty seven of Clarissa or the History of a Young Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Gillam, Betty's Bledrus, Lampeter, Wales. Clarissa Harlow by Samuel Richardson. Letter thirty seven. Miss Howe to Miss Clarissa Harlow. Sunday, March the 19th. I beg your pardon, my dearest friend, for having given you occasion to remind me of the date of my last. I was willing to have before me as much of the workings of your wise relations as possible, being verily persuaded that one side or the other would have yielded by this time, and then I should have had some degree of certainty to found my observations upon. And indeed, what can I write that I have not already written? You know I can do nothing but rave at your stupid persecutors, and that you don't like. I advised you to resume your own estate, that you won't do. You cannot bear the thought of having their Solmes, and Lovelace is resolved you shall be his. Let who will say to the contrary. I think you must be either one man's or the other's. Let us see what their next step will be. As to Lovelace, while he tells his own story, having behaved so handsomely on his intrusion in the woodhouse and intended so well at church, who can say but that the man is the least blameworthy? Wicked people, to combine against so innocent a man. But, as I said, let us see what their next step will be, and what course you will take upon it, and then we may be the more enlightened. As to your change of style to your uncles and brother and sister, since they were so fond of attributing to you a regard for Lovelace, and would not be persuaded to the contrary, and since you only strengthened their arguments against yourself by denying it, you did but just as I would have done, in giving way to their suspicions and trying what they would do. But if, but if, pray, my dear, indulge me a little, you th yourself think it was necessary to apologise to me for that change of style to them, and till you will speak out like a friend to her unquestionable friend, I must tease you a little. Let it run, therefore, for it will run. If, then, there not be a reason for this change of style, which you have not thought to give me, be so good as to watch as I once therefore advised you, how the cause for it will come on. Why should it be permitted to steal upon you, and you know nothing of the matter? When we get a great cold, we are apt to puzzle ourselves to find out when it began, or how we got it, and when it is accounted for, down we sit, contented, and let it have its course, or if it be very troublesome, take a sweat, or some other means to get rid of it. So, my dear, before the malady you wot of, yet what not of, grows so importunate, as you must be obliged to sweat it out, let me advise you to mind how it comes on. For I am persuaded, as surely as I am now writing to you, that the indiscreet violence of your friends on the one hand, and the insinuating address of Lovelace on the other, if the man be not a greater fool than anybody thinks him, will effectually bring it to this, and do all his work for him. 
but let it. If it must be Lovelace or Soames, the choice cannot admit of debate. Yet, if it be true that is reported, I should prefer almost any of your other lovers to either, unworthy as they also are. But who can be worthy of a Clarissa? I wish you are not indeed angry with me for harping so much upon one string. I must own that I should think myself inexcusable so to do, the rather as I am bold enough to imagine it a point out of all doubt from fifty places in your letters where I to labour the proof, if you would ingeniously own, own what you'll say, why, my Anna, how, I hope you don't think that I'm already in love. No, to be sure. How can your Anna Howe have such a thought? What then shall we call it? You might have helped me to a phrase, a conditional sort of liking? That's it. Oh, my friend, did I not know how much you despise prudery, and that you are too young, too lovely to be a prude? But avoiding such hard names. Let me tell you one thing, my dear, which nevertheless I have told you before, and that is this, that I shall think I have reason to be highly displeased with you, if, when you write to me, you endeavour to keep from me any secret of your heart. Let me add, that if you would clearly and explicitly tell me how far Lovelace has or has not a hold in your affections, I could better advise you what to do than at present I can. You, who are so famed for presentience, as I may call it, and that whom no young lady ever had stronger pretensions to a share of it, have had, no doubt, reasonings in your heart about him, supposing you were one day his. No doubt you are the same in Soames's case, whence the ground for the hatred of one, and for the conditional liking of the other. Will you tell me, my dear, what you have thought of Lovelace's best and of his worst, how far eligible for the first, how far rejectable for the last. Then weighing both parts in opposite scales, we shall see which is likely to preponderate, or rather, which does preponderate. Nothing less than the knowledge of the inmost recesses of your heart can satisfy my love and my friendship. Surely you are not afraid to trust yourself with a secret of this nature. If you are, then you may the more allowably doubt me. But I dare say, you will not own either, nor is there, I hope, cause for either. Be pleased to observe one thing, my dear, that whenever I have given myself any of those airs of raillery which have seemed to make you look about you, when likewise your case may call for a more serious turn from a sympathising friend, it has not been upon those passages which are written, though perhaps not intended, with such explicitness, don't be alarmed, my dear, as leaves little cause for doubt, but only when you affect reserve, when you give new words for common things, when you come with your curiosities, with your conditional likings, and with your prude and sees, mind how I spell the word, in a case that with every person defies all prudence. Over acts of treason, all these against the sovereign friendship we have avowed to each other. Remember that you found me out in a moment. You challenged me, 
I own directly there was only my pride between the man and me, for I could not endure, I told you, to think of any fellow living to give me a moment's uneasiness. And then, my man, as I have elsewhere said, was not such a one as yours. So I had reason to impute full as much to my own consideration as to his power over me, nay more, but still more to yours. For you reasoned me out of the curiosity first, and when the liking was brought to the conditional, why then, you know, I throbbed no more about him. Oh, pray now, as you say, now I have mentioned that my fellow is not such a charming fellow as yours. Let Miss Biddulph, Miss Lloyd, Miss Campion, and me have your opinion how far figure ought to engage us with a view to your own case. However, mind that, as Mr. Tony says, and whether at all, if the man be vain of it, since, as you observed in the former, that vanity is a stop-short pride in such a one, that would make one justly doubt the worthiness of his interior. You, our pattern, so lovely in feature, so graceful in person, have none of it, and have therefore, with the best grace, always held, that it is not excusable, even in a woman. You must know, that this subject was warmly debated among us in our last conversation, and Miss Lloyd wished me to write to you upon it for your opinion, to which in every debated case we always paid the greatest deference. I hope you will not be so much engrossed by your weighty cares as not to have freedom of spirits enough to enter upon the task. You know how much we all admire your opinion on such topics, which ever produces something new and instructive as you handle the subjects, and pray tell us to what you think it owing that your man seems so careful to adorn that self-adorned person of his, yet so manages that one cannot for one's heart think him a coxcomb. Let this question and the above tasks divert and not displease you, my dear. One subject, though ever so important, could never yet engross your capacious mind, if they should displease you, you must recollect the many instances of my impertinence which you have forgiven, and then say, This is a mad girl, but yet I love her, and she is my own. Anna Howe End of letter 37